Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. All right, welcome back again to the program. We are continuing our series on the sovereignty of God. If you've missed any of our past broadcasts, just subscribe to The Gospel for Life wherever you subscribe to your podcast. So we are still kind of answering objections against uh, this idea of, of God's sovereignty. Maybe just to um, bring our listeners up to speed, you know, th- there is a notion where every evangelical would affirm that God is sovereign, but they, they mean that, that he's kind of a, a king. He doesn't necessarily exercise his control over every part of the universe, but that is not what the Bible says. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, his first confession of faith when he became uh, regenerated was that God's kingdom extends over all, that his dominion is from everlasting to everlasting, that he exercises his will amongst the host of heaven and amongst the host of earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And, and that's the picture of God's kingship, his sovereignty in, in the scriptures, that he ordains every single thing that ever comes to pass, yet he does so in a way where he doesn't uh, destroy uh, secondary causes. Um, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Okay, so now we haven't dealt with certain specific scriptures, so I'll just read the question and you guys can decide which one you want to answer. So what about those various scriptures that seem to indicate that God is disappointed, like Matthew 23, 37, or Isaiah 5, 4, or that he regrets his decision, Genesis 6, 6 through 7, or 1 Samuel 15, 11, or that God changes his mind, Jonah 3, 10. Well, I'll leave the New Testament and the disappointed ones. Maybe you could tackle those. But as far as um, Genesis 6 and 1 Samuel 15, and Jonah could be parallel to this, but Genesis and 1 Samuel, here you have the language of regret. You could even throw in Exodus 32 that God, in the King James, repented or relented, depending on the translation, or turned is really the clue there. But when, when it speaks about that, there is a technical term that we use, and it's not a convenient thing that we're busting out to get, a, get out of it. It's not a parachute for Calvinists. Um, it's called anthropomorphism. And it's just made of two words, anthropos, which means man, and morphe, which means form. So God is depicting himself in those passages in the form of a man. In this, because we understand that God does not have hands and arms, even turning he doesn't have an axis in that sense, okay? So there are various attributes of God without which he wouldn't be God. It wouldn't make any sense on even an Arminian or Calvinistic view, any historic monotheistic position. It wouldn't make sense if God were finite, if he were mutable, and even you can bring in impassibility and some other more controversial, um, wouldn't have been controversial attributes in the past, but eternality, that he's temporal, he's not bound to time. And so clearly the scriptures are speaking in some figurative way. And that happens to be the figure of speech that it's, that it's using. Well, why would he do that? 
And, um, and and I would just say again because we have very puny brains and very small attention spans, and so God has to speak as Calvin said. Uh, God speaks in lisps, in a sense, in goo goos. He's accommodating in biblical speech to the level where human beings can understand. And even where we talk about this and reflect on it more, the, the fact of the matter is at one point or another, we were all simple in our faith. And so we have to, God can only talk about himself one or two things at a time. He's infinite. If he said everything about himself every time he spoke, our heads would explode. Mm. Okay? So that's why. It's a perfectly good reason for him to speak in anthropomorphisms in Scripture. And that's what's going on in those two passages. That's right. Or in the case of Matthew, he, he likens himself to a hen. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't have feathers. <laughs> really? <laughs> so in Isaiah, here's where God is kind of laying some charges against his, his covenant people. And he says, he's giving this analogy of, of building a vineyard for them, digging it out, clearing the stones, planting the choice vines, building a watchtower, hewing out a wine vat. And then he says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? In other words, kind of the objection is that, look, God exercises sovereignty as far as it could go. And then, you know, it was left up to the, the freedom of Israel and they chose against God. Well, here's the thing. What the God, argument that God is making here is that externally, I have given you every single benefit. We, we totally acknowledge that God could have changed their hearts and made them uh, love him and take out the heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh and cause them to walk in righteousness all their lives. This scripture is falling. It's, it's not saying that part. It's just saying there's no outside external advantage that I did not give you. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an argument against um, God's sovereignty here. Yeah. In many ways, the solution is the same logically as First Timothy 2.4, which is a different beast altogether when he talks about his desire that all be saved and so forth. And, and the, you know, and there's two reform ways to handle that, and that's fine. But in one of the ways to handle it, you talk about uh, the desires of God or the wills of it. And it's not talking about diverse or distinct wills in God that are at war with each other. It's talking about senses of his will. Okay, so both historic Calvinists and historic Arminians are particularists. We're not universalists. In other words, we do understand that many will go to hell. So when I look at 1 Timothy 2.4, I really am looking at the same thing here. In these passages in Isaiah 5.4 and Matthew 23, there's a limit. God goes to a limit and no further. That's true for the Arminian and the Calvinist. Mm -hmm. The Arminian is simply going to say, this is what limits him, namely free will. The Calvinist will say, no, this is what limits him, namely God's glory. And the only question remaining is, which one's taught in Scripture? Mm -hmm. Where do you see in Scripture God saying that I will choose this over this, on the basis of man's free will, which I put above all. No, you never see that. Yeah. So the same as in 1 Timothy 2.4. We all grant that his desire for people's good and salvation is limited by something in him. Both sides have to agree with that. That problem does not arise from the Calvinist. The problem's there in the text. Yeah. And the only question is, which option for what limits that from being exercised in God, which higher desire or higher goal that God has is what he puts above all. Is it his glory, as Calvinists say? Or is it free will being exalted, as Arminians say? Which yeah. one's taught in Scripture? Yeah. Well, he's going to operate according to his nature. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. As, as far as what, what dri- him driving himself by his desires instead of being coerced from outside of himself. 
So there's uh, one more kind of uh, the, the famous one in Jonah where, um, you know, J- Jonah basically says, this is why I didn't want to preach to the people of Nineveh, because I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew that you were going to change your mind. I knew that you really weren't going to destroy them. Um, now, of course, it's important. It's vital to this discussion that we affirm God's immutability. Just real quickly, if God ever has to change, uh, he's only changing in one of two directions. He's either improving or he's devolving. If he ever changes, it means that he is not infinitely perfect to begin with. And so we have to affirm that God is immutable, but this scripture seems to indicate that he does change, which maybe he's not sovereign. And so how do, how do we work through this? Well, theologians make a distinction between what you just talked about, his immutability, the divine life, versus what the Latin phrase, ad extra, outside of himself. Whereas very often what's being talked about are the works of God or the actions of God from the perspective not of his divine life, but from things changing outside of himself. Again, why does mm-hmm. he do that? For a very good reason, so that your head would not explode. Mm-hmm. He has to speak in ways, one thing at a time, so that our puny brains can understand. Yeah. And so he'll speak of himself acting in history as if he's in history. And you're getting the secondary cause part of that as if, as if it's happening in the divine life. But if he had to explain at every turn the difference between God in say versus God ad extra, your head would explode. And so instead, he shows you what happens after Hezekiah repents, versus here's another example, versus Hezekiah not, and God adding the years to his life. Oh, God changed. No, God changed things in history, but that was in the decree, that was in the works yeah. from the mm-hmm. beginning. When there's this, also this distinction between kind of conditional promises and mm-hmm. unconditional promises, in Jeremiah 18, it's actually a running commentary on what he's doing in Jonah. Like if he says, at any time... I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break it down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, mm-hmm. then I will relent of its disaster. So that's a, a conditional promise. Yes, I will continue to bless you. And the, the tag is, if mm-hmm. you continue like this. Yeah. And then he gives the flip side of the coin, but if any nation is righteous to begin with and then they turn to evil, then... Yeah. I will That's pluck a great up and destroy text. that nation. That's a great text because that starts to answer the question, why anthropomorphisms? Why speak in this language of conditional and so forth if it's all decreed? Answer, because God is addressing us as people who are repenters or non-repenters, people that have a real existential issue here. Um, God is not addressing us as you know snooty members of a philosophical symposium. Mm-hmm. He's addressing us as people that are that are um, standing on a on quicksand uh, on top of a lake of fire. Uh, people that need to make a decision. People that need to to come to grips with eternal things. That's the kind of audience we are. We're not the kind of audience that can handle wrestling with the counterfactuals in light of God's decree and so forth and so on. So why would he speak in anthropomorphisms? So you get it and get it quick before you die. Yeah. He, he wants to teach us. Yeah. And our souls are on the line. Yeah. Well, so we have a, about two and a half minutes left. And we, we teased it a little bit yesterday about God's sovereignty and, um, say, government, specifically the theology in Romans 13. And so somebody might say, well, God has ordained the state to be thus and thus. And so therefore, we, we ought not to, you know, uh, resist the government in any way, in any meaningful way. Because that would be to resist God. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to read Romans 13 in light of everything else that the scriptures say about government. The problem is that the effects of pietism over the past few generations, and now the two-kingdom view that has come out today, that version of it, 
prepares people's minds to not think about political things as if they are a doctrine that the Bible teaches. So you read Romans 13, where Paul is addressing a, a, a group of people in a New Testament context where Rome is in charge, they're getting their butts kicked, and he wants to make sure, uh, he's reading this, writing this to the capital of the empire, that church. Uh, we're going to show them, we're going to prove to them that we're good citizens and so forth. And so it has a particular angle. And if you tear that out of context, you know, everything in there we embrace. God does ordain all authorities and so forth. One of the basic mistakes they're making on an exegetical level is they're reading all the, the decree language, but none of the design language. So in other words, that's they're right. getting that God's raising up and tearing down. We affirm that. But that's not all he says. He's designed a certain office with certain limits, that if it transgresses those limits, it's not even the same thing. Yeah, I mean, specifically in verse 3, you know, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. What if you have a ruler that is a terror mm-hmm. to good, good conduct and not to bad? Doesn't that completely uh, pervert the design that God had? Can you even call them a ruler from God anymore right. if they're not even in the design that this very verse says? Yeah. Not one to be obeyed. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, Van Drunen would say that they are accountable to God at the end. In other words, it's not for, that's not for us to do anything about um, the biblical authors and the characters in the various um, where Jewish people were in pagan courts or Jesus or Paul speaking to people that were in authority, they wouldn't have had any of that. They didn't speak to the government as if the government was simply a blank check um, that they could fill in whatever way they wanted. They were answerable to God now, and we can tell them that and, and act accordingly in appropriate ways. It's a That's big right. subject. Right, yeah. Well, thanks for being on the show this last these last five days. Yeah. Appreciate you were here. And Pastor Paul, appreciate you were here, brother. Thank you again, brother, so much. Uh, please go to ReformationBoise.com. You can find out all the details of our upcoming conference coming up September 17th and 18th. Don't want to miss it. We will see you next time. 